Is Endgame just the beginning? Disney has its eyes on the prize in the streaming wars, and now that it's locked the biggest movie opening ever by a mile, all the pieces might be falling into place. Now, I now consider myself to be something of an expert on Avengers Endgame. Saw it in Orlando on vacation on Friday, then got stranded in Vegas for work on Monday and saw it again. Don't ask. And basically, Disney couldn't ask for a better setup for the launch of its streaming strategy this fall. This year, it's closing out the top two, well, two of at least, the top grossing movie franchises of all time. Avengers and the Star Wars Skywalker Saga. And this, as some of the biggest names in tech, including Apple, Google, and Amazon, are also suiting up to do battle in streaming. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC at the NASDAQ market, uh, market site overlooking Times Square in New York. And joining me today to break it down, CNBC.com tech editor Steve Kovacs. Steve, great to have you. Let's start with Avengers Endgame. We all know record $1.2 billion opening weekend at the box office. Since then, it's ticked up a couple more points, 1.3 something. But now you got Hulu this morning announcing a slate of new originals. Disney now owns most of that, including multiple Marvel series, all of which are going to be available this fall on the new streaming service. So, what do you think? On the strength of Endgame, The Rise of Skywalker, all this new stuff, can Disney beat Netflix and all other comers in the streaming game, Steve? It's going to be really hard for Netflix to compete with this just based on the level of that awesome Disney IP between Star Wars and Marvel alone, not to mention all the Mickey Mouse stuff they're going to add on <laughs> there, too. Mickey Mouse yeah, little old Mickey Mouse, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're going to... Any parent is going to have to sign up for this service, especially at the price it's at. But what I really like what they're doing with the Hulu uh, bit of it is they're making the more adult-oriented stuff, kind of like what we saw with the Netflix shows like Daredevil, mm -hmm. which was more adult-themed, a little gorier, some swear words and things like that. They're going to bring those type of Marvel shows to the Hulu platform, whereas the more big-budget, popcorn flicks, family-friendly stuff uh, will be on Disney+. Plus. So, you know, today they announced the Ghost Rider uh, show which is going to launch next year, which I thought I'm personally really excited about that. Just being a big Marvel fan and Ghost Rider is such a cool character, um, and then they can really leverage on top of that. They're they're bringing some of the Marvel characters a little bit grittier and under the radar to Hulu, and then the Captain Marvels, the Avengers, and all that other stuff is going to live on Disney Plus. So I think that's really smart. The, the cool thing about this for Disney, though, is that it's got these two brands that everybody knows, if not everybody loves, but Avengers and Star Wars both ending their runs in 2019 right as they're launching this service that's all about libraries. So if people want to relive those movies and all the ones leading up to it, they're going to have to subscribe to Disney+, Plus. it seems like, to get that. But then... Beyond that, how much is that going to matter? Because the premise behind Netflix is they've got so many members, they're so global, that they know kind of in a customizable basis what people in different regions really want to see. So is it really about library or is it about data? Because if it's about data, then Netflix wins. See, I think it's more about library. I mean, just I've noticed personally within the last year or so how crowded Netflix has gotten. It's like back in the day when you would switch through your cable, uh, cable channels, you know, channel surfing. That's what the Netflix helps homepage feels like now. When you're scrolling through, you literally don't know what to watch. They're producing so much content, 
it's really lost that feel of you know good curation that you used to get um, when you would originally uh, log on to Netflix. You really felt like they got you and knew what you wanted to watch. And I mean, I'm just speaking anecdotally, of course, but just by them pumping out so much content every year right. and, and casting such a wide net, it doesn't have that heavy level of curation. Whereas Disney, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get the Marvel, you're going to get the Star Wars, you're going to get Frozen and, and um, all that other kind of stuff. And, and it's stuff we know people love, and it's stuff people are going to be silly not to sign up for. So what about uh, Apple and Amazon? I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure out, okay, you got Netflix on the one hand. That's the, the newcomer. They kind of kicked off this whole streaming thing before people thought that it could even be a revolution. Clearly it is. Now you got Disney coming in at the other side. They're the ones who are the partners. They would sell their VHS tab- tapes in, in Walmart, and they yeah hand out their content to cable, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're going in on streaming, owning the platform and the content. What's left for Apple and Amazon to do? I mean, much less Comcast, parent company uh, of CNBC, among others. I mean, they, they don't have the library quite of Disney, nor do they have the tech legacy of Netflix. Right, and so I, I guess NBC, you know, we're going to have to see what their service looks like early next year. But, I mean, there's plenty of stuff. There's Jurassic Park, all the Universal movies. There's, right. You know, there's some, there are some yeah. big names, like, floating around in there. But when you talk about Apple and Amazon, yeah, they're going to have to invest big. I think Amazon is really smart to get that Lord of the Rings franchise. That is a huge franchise. Yeah. Everyone is going to be glued to that. That ha- That's positioned, you know, they've been um, looking at, like, how can we get our Game of Thrones? What's our Game of Thrones going to be? And it seems like they're doubling down and thinking that's going to be this Lord of the Rings series that they're working on in secret. Um, and then when it comes to Apple, Apple, that is just a big puzzle for me. I can't even figure it out. I yeah. know you, you were probably at the event, and I watched that event, and I have no idea what that service is going to look like. I, we barely saw maybe a couple clips from uh, the original shows. We had the stars. There's a lot of star power attached to it, sure, and they're brands within themselves, but as far as what the shows are going to look like and if people are going to want to pay for, I don't know, what is it, a dozen shows at most at, to, at launch, yeah. um, it's going to be really hard to convince people to pay another 6 to $10 a month on top of Netflix, on top of Hulu, on top of your Amazon Prime account, um, I'm, yeah. I'm less bullish on the Apple content offering than I am on the others. Universal, two words, Harry Potter. Yeah, oh, and they Harry Potter, of course. Something. I forgot about Harry. Harry, yeah. They got to figure out a way to bring Harry Potter to TV if they really want to win this, I think. Now, let's move on to Facebook, announcing a complete redesign of its mobile app and the website that's coming, centered around groups and events, while also considering hiding likes from its Instagram platform, something Twitter has considered as well. Mark Zuckerberg trying to make light of the company's recent privacy issues during yesterday's keynote, but maybe landing a little flat. Take a listen. I get that a lot of people aren't sure that we're serious about this. (laughs) I know that we don't exactly have the, the strongest reputation on privacy right now, to put it lightly. I, you know, I see Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> trying to channel a little uh, Barack Obama there. You know, kind of, uh, uh, you think it worked? No, not at all. I mean, given, <laughs> you know, what is it? Every other week we hear another data leakage or, or some just yeah. negative thing hitting. That is not the thing you should be joking about right now. And it's like, you should be sincere, not joking about it when, when it's something this serious. And I know investors don't care and they're, they're printing money and every earnings looks great despite all these privacy scandals. Yeah. But in the long term, you really got to have the trust of your users 
pictures and just making a joke about it. Come on. I'm not sure privacy is really the problem with Facebook. I mean, we talk about privacy a lot, but mostly I think what I post on Facebook when I tweak the settings, it it gets seen by the people who I want to see it, and it doesn't get seen by the people who I don't want to see it. It's a different issue, I think, with Facebook and the way it's handling the flow of information through society, uh, through the world, a lot of it bad information in areas where people are getting hurt by it. That's not a privacy issue. So I kind of feel like he's talking about privacy and making Facebook more private. I'm not sure that solves the fundamental problems that the platform is facing right now. Yeah, are you talking just the fake news stuff and the things yeah, in Myanmar I mean, if, and so if, forth? If, oh, yeah, if that's people absolutely. People are sharing fake news just with their own private group of thugs and villains yeah. out there who are causing problems in in, uh, in society. I'm not sure that fixes anything. No, especially on WhatsApp. WhatsApp, it's a big problem in certain countries. And uh, the India elections, that was a huge deal. Yeah. People spreading fake news through WhatsApp, which is private and encrypted, and it's really hard to monitor that kind of stuff. They've lost control of that. And then also, you know, as, as Zuckerberg calls it, the town square type stuff, um, which is easy to identify, easier to identify, rather, um, but yeah, there, that, is, that is the real danger there, more, even more so to some degree than uh, your private information, a photo of you or your password getting leaked out. Absolutely. And election interference. I mean, if, yeah. Oh, yeah. if foreign powers are trying to interfere with elections by spreading bad information, I'm not sure how extra layers of privacy making the flow of information harder for the authorities to track is really going to fix that. No, absolutely. And I mean, you can't. And by, by their own design, this is going to be end-to-end encrypted. They, don't, they even said yesterday, we're not going to be able to read the stuff you're sharing, review the stuff you're sharing. And that's great. I mean, that's why I use iMessage as my primary social network. I don't want anybody to be able to peep into what I'm sharing with my friends and family. Um, I don't even use Facebook anymore just because of all the concerns you can think of, but primarily really? because of that. Yeah, I, I quit Facebook about six months ago, and I, have, How do I, I don't even miss it. How get in touch with you then? iMessage. iMessage is the best social network. Between iMessage and iCloud photo sharing, uh, that's the only social network you need. If you want to talk about sharing with your friends and family, it's built right into your iPhone. You don't need a Facebook account. Uh, I guess that's true. Now, finally, more potential pain for retailers, courtesy of who else? Amazon. Announcing its plans for one-day shipping as standard for Amazon Prime members. Steve, I'm not sure I care about one-day shipping from Amazon. Amazon is so pervasive at this point. I was talking to my youngest, he's eight, about uh, getting something online, and he's like, well, does Amazon have it? And I was like, no, I don't think so, but I think the store we got it from has it. And he's like, well, but if Amazon has it, (laughs) we can't get it. Like, he thinks, he thinks things only come from Amazon. He sounds like my wife. My wife, <laughs> see, my wife is super excited about the one-day shipping thing because she often forgets to order something, and she does the not everything's on the two-hour Prime window or or you know one of those other special things. Now that they're opening up all the way, I mean, as an am- heavy Amazon user, I get everything from toilet paper to you know gadgets on, on Amazon. So I'm excited for that. But you got to think of what that means for the investment into their warehouses and infrastructure. What what that means for the hourly workers in those warehouses, what kind of added pressure that puts on them. And uh, I don't think that was necessarily addressed when they announced this last week. And I'm concerned to see um, how that plays out too. But I think there's a decreasing marginal return to delivering stuff faster and faster. Like if Amazon told me right now I could have something in one hour at my house, I'm not home. I don't don't need it 
in an hour. Uh, these things can be timed to a certain degree. I'm pretty happy with two-day shipping. Sometimes stuff arrives within a day, and, and that's wonderful. That's great, but I wonder if this is really about Amazon slowing growth in its core retail business and then wanting to pull some lever to see if it'll do something when really it might not do that much. It did send a target uh, shares tanking. And I think, you know, the e-commerce business, yeah, you're right, slowing growth. But I mean, Amazon is, I don't even consider Amazon an e-commerce business anymore. They're a cloud business with an e-commerce business on the side. You don't really, that, that's where they know all the growth is and where all the profits are. But um, anything they can do, like you said, tweak lever and, and you know, Jeff Bezos' thing is always focus on the customer, how to make things better and easier and faster for the customer. So it's not surprising they're gonna make this ubiquitous across all of Prime. True. True. Now, of course, another big story this week is Amazon, sorry, not Amazon, another company that starts with an A, Apple earnings, out with positive results, crossing over the $1 trillion market cap uh, earlier, it, reclaiming the throne as the world's most valuable publicly traded company. Now, a few numbers caught my eye in this report. Series got the first. 53%. 53%, that represents the percentage of total revenue, that's total sales, that iPhone brings in. Steve, you tweeted earlier about this, saying once upon a time, that used to be as high as two-thirds of revenue. What's the significance, you think, of 53%? Yeah, I think even higher than that. At one point, it was maybe bubbling close to 70% of revenue. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's fascinating that iPhone sales can be down that much to make up such a low or relatively low percentage of total revenue and the stock goes up. That's just fascinating to me. And what that really says is they've figured out this way to, whether it works out or not, at least convince investors that, hey, we got this, we're diversifying beyond the iPhone. There's been worries for years, right? Apple can't innovate. Apple's married to the iPhone. They're addicted to the iPhone. And now they're proving we're not addicted to the iPhone. We can generate a significant more amount of uh, revenue, um, not just based on the iPhone, That's but on services, true. wearables, and things like that. That's true, but I still feel like that 53% number is somewhat misleading because that might be the raw dollars associated right. with iPhone, but the sales driven by iPhone, a lot higher than that. You're not getting... AirPods, uh, you're, you're not getting a watch, you're not paying for a lot of these services and downloads from the App Store unless you have not only an iPhone, but a relatively recent one. Uh, you can't connect these things as well unless it's got the most updated chips. So maybe one or two generations back. So even though in the near term, that 53% looks lower, I think it's a huger percentage that's actually driven by the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, the destiny of all these services and wearables, of course, they're tied to the iPhone. It doesn't literally won't function or won't function well enough if you don't have an iPhone. I think they do work a little bit further back, like the AirPods, as long as you're running, I forget what iOS it is, as long as it's capable of running <laughs> the latest iOS, which goes back to the iPhone 6 or 6S, so, yep. you know, four or five years at least. So they, they have done what's right by the customer, at least, saying, we're going to make your phone good enough to keep longer, and that's great for the customer, maybe not so hot for Apple. I mean, you know, revenue and profits are, are still lower, and, you know, again, that's shocking that the stock went up based on that. Yeah. Um, but they have proven they can at least diversify their revenue, even if it is anchored in the iPhone. I think that's promising. Siri, give us the next digit. $5.1 billion. $5.1 billion, Apple's revenue for wearables this quarter. Tim Cook saying, if its wearables division were a standalone company, it would be in 
the Fortune 200. Once again, wearable's a big deal. I, I think AirPods are a huge product. I see them all the time. The Apple Watch doesn't quite get its due because, hey, everything's in the shadow of the iPhone, but I don't think it's clear yet how much of this stuff could stand alone without the help of the iPhone, Steve. In my mind, one of the key moments in Apple history was when Apple decided to basically divorce the iPod from the Mac. At first, it was about driving Mac sales. The iPod made your Mac experience better. They decided to make it a Windows-compatible thing, and That's then right. we saw it really take off. A lot of this stuff doesn't really connect to the broader mobile world as well as it could. So to me, it's not clear how strong it really is. Yeah, and you got, you got to wonder if Apple's going to show the same level of desperation and echo that they have with services, where they're putting services on Amazon Alexa. You have Apple Music on Amazon Alexa. You have Apple TV Plus come to Samsung TVs, which is shocking enough. Yeah. you got to wonder if they're going to adopt that later. They're going to feel that pressure in wearables to grow that category so much. It's like, eh, maybe we should let the Apple Watch work with an Android phone. Maybe we should let AirPods connect to a PC better and, and things like that. you got to wonder if that's something they're thinking further down the line. In the shorter term, there's that report from uh, Ming-Shin Kuo, the analyst from TF International Securities, who says they're going to split up the AirPod line and they're going to have a premium version and charge you even more for it. Maybe it has noise canceling or something like that. That's going to come either at the end of this year or early next year. You know what I'm sad about? What's that? I'm sad about the, the basic if not death, then languishing of the Beats brand. Yeah. Beats Well, they just have new the ones. They first, just released new yeah, ones. Yeah, they've got, they've got these power Beats coming yeah. out. But that, when it was just over G, uh, under Jimmy Iovine and uh, it was coming up, it was the first, like, cool new electronics brand yeah. I feel like we had seen in a decade. I mean, it was cool. It, yeah, it rivaled Apple in cool, and they bought it and then basically buried it. And I don't feel like in wearables their brand is even as cool as Beats used to be. I don't understand why they killed it. Really? You think so? They have LeBron in every commercial. They have, you know, they have rock stars using it all the time. Yeah, but you, I don't you watch see the NFL, every football really player is wearing them. Yeah, I feel like they, they turned, it was becoming a really, really big, global, in-your-face international brand. Yeah. And they've turned it into a little thing. It's way under Apple. I don't, you gotta wonder if they should have kept the Beats music brand for the app instead of Apple Music. That could have been a huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have done that. All right, all right. Last digit, Siri, give it to us. Three hundred ninety million. Three hundred ninety million. That's the total paid subscribers across all of Apple's services. But that's not subscriptions to Apple services necessarily. It includes subs that you get through Apple, like. Netflix, for example, other things you subscribe to using your Apple account. Steve, uh, Tim Cook, the Apple execs on the call, touted this as showing the strength of their subscription business. Is that really what that number shows, you think? Yeah, there's a giant asterisk on that one. I mean, you can subscribe. Think of all the things that aren't owned by Apple that you can subscribe to through Apple. Hulu, CBS All Access. Used to be Netflix. Netflix recently changed their rules. Uh, Spotify, and, and on down the line. I mean, so those aren't Apple subscribers, and they take a smaller slice of that subscription. It's These aren't Apple services people are subscribing to. It's not Apple News Plus. It's not Apple Music. It's not iCloud uh, subscription storage services. Um, it's all third party. And the bulk of that revenue from those, that subscriber is. number, is, is going over to those third parties. And yet, and yet they're billing through Apple, which reminds me of the old cable bundle. 
exactly. people hate so much. Some people do. Anyway, I mean, hey, we're, we're Comcast owned, so th there's some luck here <laughs> for the bundle. But is there a weakness that Apple has there, or is it all strength? Because I, I think there's strength in having, if they're the ones with the billing relationship, Hey, that's a relationship that a lot of people don't have, and 390 million is a big number. It is a big number. I guess the the, the weakness there, the potential weakness, is this antitrust and anti-competitive concerns coming out of it. Spotify is raising a stink about it in the EU, saying the so-called Apple tax is unfair towards the way Apple can promote Apple Music over Spotify. Netflix has just said we're so big, we don't even need to worry about it. So that you know, people are going to sign up for Netflix no matter what. We can circumvent uh, going through the App Store. Um, if anything is a threat to that, it, it is a lot easier for the user, of course, to sign up through Apple. But if, if uh, regulators start getting involved, especially in Europe, um, that's probably a potential weakness there. All right. Now, we're going to move on. We are introducing a new segment here today, Hard Knocks, where we dissect some of the biggest hot takes in tech this week. Our first one comes courtesy of our friend Chamath Palhapitiya yesterday on CNBC's Halftime Report. Take a listen. I would not put a single dollar in enterprise. It is overbuilt, it's overinvested, they're highly, highly unprofitable, and the real winner is Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. Now, he, he had a couple of caveats there that we didn't play. He said Slack is good. He's a big owner in Slack. He's on the board. Zoom, yes. Uh, Zoom, he, he also enjoys that they just went public right here at the NASDAQ uh, a few days ago. And he said, and a few others. But I feel like, I mean, Chamath, love the guy. He's been on Fort Knox in the past. Uh, but he has this urge to be controversial. Is this really that controversial saying most of enterprise isn't that hot, but aside from these two big ones and then a few others, you wouldn't put a, a dollar into them? I, I feel like there's always a handful of enterprise startups that are worth investing in, but okay, not everything. Yeah, and worth investing in also because they're acquisition targets, right? Those big companies he just mentioned, especially Google with their new uh, cloud boss, Thomas Curran, you've got to imagine they're sniffing around for acquisitions in order to grow. So, I mean, from that standpoint, you know, they are acquisition targets. So, um, you know, he, the big disclosure there, of course, is that he's gonna love Slack because he's a Slack board member and he just likes being controversial for the sake of it. So it's hard to take him too seriously. And there, I definitely think those other enterprise companies could be acquisition targets. Plus, I always feel like enterprise, it doesn't get the heat, the excitement from everyday people, from everyday investors that consumer does. I mean, no, you know, the not. stuff that the kids are playing with, people pay attention to, but, you know, enterprise storage or, you know, um, even to, to some extent, software-defined networking, people are like, ah, what is that? I don't know. And a lot of times those names can sneak under the radar and end up doing well. Okay, finally, how about Walt Mossberg on Twitter this week saying, quote, the, likely, Walt. <laughs> yeah, the likely FTC fine against Facebook is far too tiny to influence its behavior or punish it for the damage it has done. She, referring to uh, Recode co-founder Kara Swisher, suggests adding zeros. I suggest calculating it in years of revenues. And after we get a real DOJ back, jail time. Whoa, Steve. Wow. <laughs> Watt was supposed to have retired, but he seems to have gotten spicier. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's on CNBC quite a bit for someone who's he retired, is? I feel like. Yeah. Um, no, I think maybe that's a little too harsh. He is definitely paying attention to what's going on in other countries like Australia. I think some European countries are saying, 
it's not good enough that we find these companies. Uh, it's, we have to like hold the executives accountable. They might deserve jail time for this. I don't know. Something about that just feels wrong. I mean, right now, Mark Zuckerberg is afraid to go to the UK because he is wanted for questioning by uh, Parliament and other uh, institutions over there. And if he, as soon as he lands his jet there, he's probably going to get scooped up really? and, and questioned. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know like Julian Assange was afraid no, to travel. No, not like that. But, he's, but I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is he really scared of like harsh British questioning? Oh, yeah, scared enough to turn them down and just send one of his top lawyers over there? Absolutely. Yeah. He can't. He can't fly in a jet. For and spend two days um, over there answering questions. He did it in the EU, but not in the UK. True, true. Um, I don't know. I still think he'd be fine with it. Uh, he, but yeah, Walt has a point in that he's relaxed enough to joke about their privacy reputation yeah. right now, even after expecting a three to five billion dollar fine. That's a heck of a parking ticket for most of us. Steve, thank you Thanks, for John. being with us today. Uh, you can read all of Steve's stuff, or at least his most recent stuff, on CNBC.com. Follow him on Twitter at Steve Kovac. And we're going to close the show this week with a long shot. I sat down with VMware's CEO, Pat Gelsinger, in Las Vegas over the weekend. He's a 40-year tech veteran. I, I talked to him about his first ever plane ride, how many fingers each of his uncles have, and how all of that factors into his long shot start in Silicon Valley. Take a listen. Pat Gelsinger. CEO of VMware. Thanks for sitting down. Always great to see you, John. Thank you. So it's been seven years. Yeah, almost. Almost. Just about. Uh, I guess toward the end of the year. Um, what's the biggest lesson? Well, I do think that um, you know, there's a certain amount. You know, anytime you step into a job, you, you know, a CEO might get credit for the things they've done in the first couple of years. They deserve none of it, <laughs> right? And then the third, fourth year, you're sort of starting to get your pieces of strategy coming together. Uh, here we are, you know, finishing the sixth year very successfully. And there is a certain amount of that. It just takes you a while to build a strategy, get the organization, start executing on it. And uh, obviously with a few little things like Dell EMC merger in the <laughs> middle of that, maybe it took a little bit longer. You know, but it really is one of those things. The CEO job, you should, have, you should not have it for less than five or six years. You just need that much time to go make it successful. And, uh, Most CEOs do have it for less yeah, than that amount of time. Yeah, you just can't build a strategy that way, right? Build an organization, build a market momentum uh, for it. And I'm just really excited about where we've gotten the company now. You know, the markets are you know, really recognizing that. The company, you just feel that momentum inside of it. You know, the uh, different partners are coming our way. We're seeing the success of the strategy. We described the strategy almost exactly to the word five years ago. Mm. And now, right, it's really starting to come together in a powerful way. So it just takes some time. Now, you are a guy who does not worship at the altar of technology, unlike much of Silicon Valley. So I, I want to ask you, what is technology doing to society, to culture, good and bad in this era that we're in right now? You know, in, in many ways, it's just thrilling. And, you know, I was just, in fact, at Mercy Ships, right? Their uh, founders uh, weekend and how they're using technology to go reach some of the least 
uh, available for medical treatments throughout Africa. It's just so heart-rendering. You know, some of the work that we're doing in schools of Africa and bringing them online for internet Describe classes. Describe How is Mercy Ships using technology specifically to, to do what they do more effectively? So here you are going to some of the most impoverished areas on the planet uh, and being able to offer basically a floating hospital. So they're bringing world-class right, uh, capabilities of radiology right, into those environments, being able to have surgeons, et cetera. You know, we've uh, worked with them. Uh, Dell is uh, supporting them and bringing uh, modern VMware, Dell equipment, uh, IBM with Watson Services, bringing the latest in medical technologies now being made available to the least capable on the planet. Uh, we're helping to bring uh, technology, uh, you know, STEAM education, into the slums of Nairobi, right? Imagine it, you know, STEAM education to the slums of Nairobi. Just stunning things are going on. Being, and I believe, you know, bringing education to every human on the planet fundamentally is the best antidote for terrorism, that people have a modern learning and the, you know, the greatest of uh, things. So in many ways, we see so many good things happening with uh, technology. But at the same time, you know, technology, most people say that Bitcoin's uh, primary use is by the underworld. Mm. Right uh, as well, and I fundamentally believe technology is neutral, right? And it's our job as a society to constantly be shaping it as a force for good, and that falls more on us as technology leaders because technology is moving so fast. You know, it becomes one that you know in many cases the politics or the regulations can't keep up as we're going faster. And I do believe that that becomes more important on our, our industry. And in some cases, I think we've gotten it right. In other cases, I think we've got more work to do. And, right, you know, and clearly some of the current uh, situations going on in Europe and U.S. with some of the social media effects and so on, you know, clearly said we haven't caught up to what technology is making available. I wonder about that because I remember 15 years ago there was this vision of, you know, I can't remember what it was called, maybe the one PC, but the, the vision of a cheap, uh, portable, effective, yeah. connected PC that would be available in the developing world that would help people to learn and connect people to, to knowledge. Did that become the smartphone and Facebook, and did it have the impact that Silicon Valley dreamed of it having? Well, certainly the $100 PC, as it was described at the time, didn't have the impact, and it was replaced by the smartphone. Right. And today, the mobile device, and I call it the four superpowers, you know, cloud, mobility, AI, and IoT, right, it's these four forces that are shaping everything. And mobility now has really been that force of the $100 PC, far beyond, I think, what any of us imagined at the time. Over half of humanity now has a persistent connection to the internet, most of that by mobile devices. And they cost less than $100, a lot of them. These, yeah, and a lot phones. of places, you know, 50 bucks, 20 bucks, right, you know, being able to have very simple services. But now uh, some of the work that we support in uh, Kenya, for instance, you know, farmers can now get crop information, market information, and their farms go from being bankrupt to being profitable as a result just of a cell phone that's now able to give them market information for the first time. Some uh, companies like Mobile Medic, right, are being able to use the basic cell phone to be able to give the most basic medical services to some of the most remote areas. So yeah, I believe fundamentally the mobile phone has replaced that vision and probably even more powerfully than Silicon Valley conceived it to be at the time. You've been in Silicon Valley for 
gosh, how long? You were at Intel for 30 years, right? Yeah, 30 and, years. And, and now. you've been gone from Intel for almost 10. Yes, yes. So it's almost 40 years. It's scary to say that, but I've been <laughs> in tech for 40 years. I used to always say I started when I was 18. Now I have to say I started when I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> so what was Silicon Valley like when you arrived and how has it changed? You know, in many ways... You know, it's still that same vibrant entrepreneurial belief that we can accomplish anything. But now, you know, there is so much success in Silicon Valley that I believe that, you know, so many come almost, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a, a unicorn. Of course I will be. Right. And you have to stay hungry. Right. You know, you also, I believe, have to stay humble. Right. Because we really are changing the world. Right. It's hard to do both. It's hard to be hungry and humble. It is. It is. And I think in that sense, that's some of the areas that I get most concerned about, right? And, uh, you know, when I meet with young CEOs, you know, I talk to them about that all the time, right? And, uh, you know, hope that they go visit a, a slum uh, of uh, Africa or India to keep that humility in place. And we're also being bestowed with every human's most of intimate details, Right, their social experiences, their medical experiences. You know, I at the recent RSA conference, I spoke that we, the tech industry, have failed our consumers in security. Right, they're spending more in security and they're losing more, right, uh, with increased breaches of greater uh, cost. We have not met the contract that they have given to us by presenting to us their data and their personal information. We must do a better job in these uh, areas, and cyber is one that I'm per personally quite passionate on, that we just have to do better. Otherwise, people shouldn't be giving us all of their financial, all of their personal, all of their medical, all of their social information. We really haven't deserved that. We have to rise up. What do you think is the tech world's, maybe even the business world's, challenge of the next decade? I believe exactly this topic that we're touching on may be the biggest one. I believe it could be the undoing of some of the biggest, most successful companies if we don't get it right. Hmm. You know, because, you know, regulatory effects, GDPR of Europe, you know, you know, they truly could just say, no, we demand, right, a different business model going forward. You know, it could be the breakup of AT&Ts, right, like we saw a century, uh, you know, decades ago. I think there's, uh, you know, very important forces at work here, and we, the tech industry, must do a better job. You didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. Uh, you grew up on a, on a farm in Berks County, Pennsylvania, right? Yes, the most rural of areas. Um, what was that like? You know, it was very much uh, this highly, uh, you know, homogeneous, Germanic, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch farming community, hard work wand you everything. You know, a lazy day was you didn't have to get up to milk, right? <laughs> you know, you could sleep in until breakfast at 6 a.m. as opposed to being in the barn at 4 a.m. You know, hard work. Uh, one time, John, I was with uh, all of my uncles. My dad was uh, one of 10. And, uh, you know, they're all around at a family reunion. And I look around the table. Not one of my uncles has all of their fingers, right? It's like you talk about, you know, hard work. It's like, yeah, this is hard work. But it was also this deep values-based environment where a firm handshake, your word, was the bond, 
right? A commitment that you're going to get up every day, you're going to work hard, you're not in control of the environment and whether the crops are going to be good, but you're going to give your best effort every single day with the highest of integrity. And out of that came a deep work ethic, right? You know, a spiritual belief and environment as well that has carried me well to this day. That just reminds me every day that I'm working for things far greater than my job. Mm. And how does a young man in a Pennsylvania Dutch farming community get interested in technology? Well, my dad was uh, 9 of 10, and he never had his own farm. Hmm. So he, his grandpa said, we have enough farms in the family, just work with your siblings. So that worked great for this first uh, 15, 20 years of my dad's life. But then as the cousins started to grow up, you know, they were taking over the farms. And uh, so it became obvious that I wasn't going to be a farmer. I'm the oldest boy. I would have been the, uh, you know, the son to inherit the farm, but there was no son to, there was no farm to inherit for this son. So I accidentally took a scholarship exam, uh, won the scholarship, and uh, went to Lincoln Tech to get my last year and a half of high school, and uh, got an associate's degree in electronics technology. Intel came recruiting and uh, invited me to California. I had never been on an airplane, John. So what do you think I said? Sure, right? I'm going to California, a free trip. And that gave, uh, became a job offer from Intel. And 30 years later, you know, it was just an incredible experience. So I got to hit rewinder. Are you saying that if your grandfather had given your father a farm, you, you might have farmed it? Oh, guarantee you. Absolutely. I'd be a farmer in Pennsylvania. I liked working on farms. I liked working with my dad. The number one son always inherits the farm, right? I'd be a farmer in Pennsylvania today. So, you know, a tech executive or Pennsylvania farmer, right? Yeah, you know, it's just the, amazing the, the pathway that God has uh, directed my life. Absolutely. And when you say that, I want to uh, ask you more about your values and your faith. You've written a book about putting your work and your faith together. And yet, it seems in all the talk about diversity that we have in, in corporate America right now, we, we haven't gotten to a language for talking about deeply held belief. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, particularly in Silicon Valley, I, I feel like, yeah, everybody can be here, but it gets uncomfortable if you really deeply believe something that's not secular. How do you navigate that, particularly as the leader of a big public technology company who's also openly Christian? Yeah. And, you know, for us, you know, we we think about diversity and inclusion. It's been a journey for me, right? I certainly have a lot to learn. You know, as I say, you know, there was no diversity where I grew up. You know, I joked that the only ethnic foods I had eaten when I started at Intel were spaghetti and uh, pizza. (laughs) Right? It's been quite the journey for me uh, personally. But as a Christian leader, you know, my company knows I'm a Christian. But they also know I deeply value diversity, right? And that means that we want to make it a place that people can be of any race, any religious perspective, any sexual orientation. And that I open it up to say, please give me feedback when I'm not being that person. Hmm. And every once in a while, I'm uncomfortable with that, right, with some of the feedback. And as I say, a diversity journey begins when you're ready to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. How does the uncomfortable feedback come to you? Uh, Sometimes from my head of HR, 
gives me that feedback. Some some people who can speak out every once in a while, uh, you know, in uh, different settings where people will say, well, he was very uncomfortable with that. It was in a meeting with uh, some of our pride, uh, our uh, pod leaders, we call them, power of difference groups, and uh, our uh, pride uh, pod, uh, one of them, uh, he came out that day that he was gay, and he was very uncomfortable doing that with me because of my strong Christian beliefs in that setting. And I came back to him and I thanked him so much for his willingness to do that. And then I apologized for having created an environment where he didn't feel comfortable before that uh, meeting. So, and it's constantly, and I've told that story inside of the company and uh, to our leadership uh, team uh, for it, that we have to make it safe for people of different religious environments. And we decided to create the spirituality zone mm. used by our Muslim partners, by our Christians, by our Hindus, a place that they can feel comfortable on campus for different religious perspectives. And we're working to say, what does it mean to be a spiritual friendly workplace uh, as well? And some are saying, well, I'm an atheist. Does that mean I'm not part of that? <laughs> and so we're working through that conversation as well. What does that mean? Because we really believe that it's about bringing your whole self to the workplace. And over 85% of humanity claims some religious affiliation. And if I don't give that 85% the opportunity to express that in the workplace, then I haven't brought their whole self to the workplace. And that's what we're really out to achieve. Because if all of our people feel they can bring their whole self, that's a powerful amount of energy and passion that gets released. And none of us do it right. But we're on a journey to try to be a place that does it as well as it can be done today. What's it going to take to bring Silicon Valley to a more sophisticated place in, in having that conversation? Because when I, when I look at um, some of the things that are happening, say, at Google, around um, AI advisory boards mm -hmm. and em employees will say, well, we don't want this person in the group because their beliefs don't align with my beliefs. And it, it seems that in certain cases that might make sense. You uh, say some people are outside the camp because they have beliefs that are beyond the pale. But isn't there the risk in the current environment that you end up excluding people who just believe differently? Mm -hmm. when, gosh, around the world there are so many people who believe differently. Um, how does Silicon Valley come to, uh, I guess what I would consider, maybe I'm, I'm being biased in this sense, but a, a healthier place around engaging difference? Yeah, I, I do think that that fundamentally is what needs to be done. There has to be a transparency to engage around differences. And that's what diversity and inclusion is about. Right? You know, we have to do that in our workplace. We also have to do it with how we hold up our business. We have to make it okay for people to ask very uncomfortable questions. How are we going to make sure our AI is not biased? Right? Be able to scrutinize uh, against that. We think there needs to be sort of guiding principles that we uh, as an industry rally behind. And for that, we do think that we do need to rise up to a higher standard that we're measuring ourselves against in you know, how we run a responsible business, how we create an inclusive workforce, you know, how we uh, make it uh, safe for people to use our technologies and uh, really drive to the highest ethical standards that we're uh, driving. All of those, I think, need to become much more of the dialogue in uh, Silicon Valley because 
people are giving us all of their data. They're giving us the core of who they are. We have to be able to rise to the high expectations that they're bestowing upon us as an industry. And I think that the last couple of years have shown we haven't entirely lived up to that expectation. And certainly I personally, as well as VMware as a company, we hope to be part of that opportunity to do a better job in these domains. Uh, talk to me about philanthropy. I know that's an important part of how you look at your resources. How has your philanthropy evolved over the the 40 years you've been in the Valley? Well, you know, early on when uh, Linda and I got married, um, we, uh, a speaker, a guy we've got, got to know quite well, said that they gave an increasing percentage of their gross income every year. So Linda and I started at 10%, and uh, we've been increasing in a percent every year. So it started as 10% of nothing by Silicon Valley terms, and uh, now it's almost 50% of a big number. And uh, we view that as a key part of who we are, right? So every dollar we get, you know, uh, almost 50 cents is now going to a philanthropy. Uh, and we're deeply committed to those. Uh, we're involved, as I'd say, not just in our wealth, but also in engaging and helping to bring business skills mm -hmm. to those, uh, uh, bringing our networks uh, to those and being uh, deeply involved of our time uh, as well. And we also see it something that's very consistent with uh, VMware as a company, strong philanthropic uh, views inside of the company. We call it citizen philanthropy. I want all of my people to be great philanthropists, right? You know, that they're participating in causes that are greater than themselves. And of course, you know, that could be, you know, aged dogs, right? That could be schools in Kenya. You know, that could be their own uh, local churches or synagogues. It uh, might be wounded warriors, right? Mm -hmm. We're saying we want them to have, you know, the opportunity to express their passions, right? And realize that we're here to be a great workplace and produce great products. But even more than that, right, it's giving them the opportunity to, as I say, create their legacy today. When you encourage employees to express themselves and to um, donate their, their time and resources that way. They probably have an expectation on how VMware then is going to express its values, um, both in its resources and where it uses its technology or chooses not to use its technology. Um, lately there have been uh, employee protests and and uh, petitions about work with the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. How do you as a leader approach that, a subject that used to be taken for granted, that government contract work is part of what built Silicon Valley and mm -hmm. companies do it. Now it seems more controversial than it used to be. Is, is it a valid concern that employees have? Does there need to be a, a specific articulation of... of values and lines of demarcation and what we will do and won't do? You know, I, what, I, what I view it is there needs to be transparency. Right? And if a company's involved in government work, they should be very transparent about it. And if you become an employee knowing full well that we support the government in the following ways, then you've chosen to join us as an organization knowing that that's the case. You shouldn't protest. I should ask you, why'd you join us if you knew that was the case? Hmm. At the same time, nobody should be surprised 
right? You know, a company shouldn't all of a sudden, you know, surprise their employees by saying, we've started to do this, we've never done it before, and we've never talked about it, right? Because now you've changed who you are as a company by choosing to cross new lines of business that may change that employer-employee contract. So to me, it's at the core of, you know, transparency and consistency, you know, and for VMware, we have a huge customer base in the government. Right. right, we don't participate in unique government contracts that way. Right, you know, creating defense systems or other things, but our technology is deeply penetrated into all of those areas of the government, and we're very transparent about it with our employees. We've also said we don't create back doors. Absolutely not. Right, you know, and we want our code to be scrutinized to the highest levels. So we're very clear, very transparent with people. And if people have concerns, let's talk about it. Hmm. You know, come on in. Because some of these trade-offs are not going to be easy ones, right? And we need to have some pretty direct dialogue uh, on them. And, you know, well, you know, while I hope we never see protests like that, you know, I do hope that we have that kind of intense dialogue because these are hard issues, right? And I want our people to feel extremely confident that they can come to the executive team, to myself uh, as well, be able to ask hard questions. And every once in a while, we might not have gotten it just right, but I want to be the, the, the kind of leader that says, when we didn't get it just right, we want to be the ones talking to you about it. It's going to be a lot of conversations, I imagine, as quickly as technology is moving, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, surveillance. I mean, it, every month, and I guess that's being conservative, there's a headline about people figuring out that their Echo or their Google Home or you know, some camera was doing something that they didn't expect it to be doing. Yeah, I certainly expect that there's going to be that. And as technology moves faster, there needs to be more of that. But I also think there's sort of underlying principles that sort of, you know, generations of technology sort of figure it out. Right now, AI is a big one. Right now, some of the security aspects, uh, you know, are broken that really need to be fixed. And I think as those become foundational, then we'll move on to the next issues. Uh, future of work is one of my pet subjects, for sure. I wonder, what do you think is the most important skill that workers are going to need to have over the next couple decades? Well, I've sort of joked. I said that, uh, you know, in the past, you know, the three tenets of a basic education, right, a uh, hundred years ago was read, write, and arithmetic. Mm -hmm. uh, the three tenets of education, I think, today need to be read, write code, and arithmetic, right? Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally everybody needs to learn to write code. Who cares if you can write cursive or even write at all? Right? But I do think you need to write code. And I think being able to have basic computer literacy, right, basic ability to write code. You know, it's, uh, you know, in the 1500s, I think it was about 8% of humanity could read and write right, as the dark ages were about to end. Right? Today, you know, we have less than that who can write code. Right? So I'd say we're more computer illiterate than we were at the end of the dark ages. So I think that's something that just has to become a fundamental for everybody uh, going forward. Digitization, computing, technology, AI, these skills are becoming central to everything that we do and they should become a core element of our curriculum. Because communicating with computers is going to be as important as communicating with people? Uh, because much of how I communicate with other people will be done through computers. That's deep. Pat Gelsinger, thank you. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. <laughs> I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. 
Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.